this episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and I'd like to welcome you to today's presentation on understanding anxiety through a child's eyes. We are going to be really talking about what does a child see? What does a child think about when they're exposed to certain situations? And why do they think differently than, than we do? They're not just little adults. We're going to identify the symptoms of anxiety in children because they are a little bit different or they manifest a little bit differently. We're going to go over those real fast. Most of us are real familiar with the DSM. We'll review common misdiagnoses of anxiety in children, explain how children's developmental stage impacts their fears, and propose interventions to help children deal with anxiety. Symptoms of anxiety in children. Now, with adults, we have that regular laundry list that we go through. But a lot of times, kids don't have the vocabulary to put it out there. So a lot of their symptoms tend to be more behavioral and somatic than they do necessarily articulating, articulatable <laughs> that's a word, emotional. So anyway, your emotional signs of anxiety. The child is extremely sensitive and they get upset really, really easily. Now, some children are highly sensitive to begin with and not necessarily anxiety. They just tend to be more empathic. But if you have a child that starts becoming extremely sensitive, if they are irritable, when, remember that anxiety is part of the fight or flight response system so if a child starts becoming anxious they may start becoming more irritable think about a cat when it is anxious when it's afraid and it's trapped in a corner children may feel trapped so they become irritable and um, cranky they may be afraid of making even even minor mistakes and they and including test anxiety they may have panic attacks they may have phobias about bees, dogs, or exaggerated fears about things like natural disasters. They may worry about things that are far in the future. For example, you may have a middle schooler who's worried about getting into college. Now, it's good to think about college, but if they are obsessed about their GPA now because they want to make sure they get into an Ivy League school for college, you know, they may be putting the cart before the horse a little bit. They have frequent nightmares. They may get distracted from playing by their worries. Obviously, this is true in young children, but even in older children, we don't call it playing as much, but they may be involved in certain activities such as drawing or whatever their hobbies are, and they get distracted because they start worrying about something else. And they may have compulsive, repetitive behaviors such as tapping or shaking their foot. You know, we've I'm one that's very guilty of shaking my foot a lot. Um, but we recognize some of these signs and symptoms. They may start having meltdowns or tantrums or asking what if constantly. What if you get in a car accident and don't come home? What if we have a tornado with a thunderstorm today? What if? They may avoid participating in group activities, or if they're forced to be in a group activity, they may remain silent or preoccupied during that group activity. They may refuse to go, go to school and or avoid social situations with peers after school or on weekends. So again, generally they have to go to school in some way, shape, or form. They could be homeschooled, but that's a whole different ballgame. But 
even if they do go to school, they're sitting at their desk, they're not really participating in social stuff, they're focused on doing their work and getting their home without having interaction in between. They may, may become emotional or angry when separated from parents. They constantly seek approval. They may have low self-esteem and self-efficacy. They just they don't feel good about themselves and don't feel like they have the power to do things correctly and get love and all that kind of stuff. And they may be overly concerned about negative evaluations. Physical signs, I said it can be somatic, and the younger the child and the lower the emotional vocabulary, the more somatization that we often see. So they may complain of head or stomach aches. I know when my son was in first grade, um, the transition to first grade, and there were challenges in his school to begin with, that he got stressed out before he would go to school because he was so worried about going from a green light to a yellow light on the behavior chart, which he had never gone to a yellow light, but he was just stressed that it might happen. And no matter how much I assured him that, you know, even if you do go to a yellow light, you just figure out how to address it. He would have, quote, carnotaurs, which are dinosaurs, in his tummy, and he would be too upset to eat breakfast before he would go to school. You know, obviously that's kind of a glaring warning sign that, that something's amiss. We want to listen to what they say. They may refuse to eat snacks or lunch at school. And if you start asking why, it could be because their stomach's upset. It could be because they have anxiety that somebody's going to take their lunch. It could be that they're afraid to eat in front of other people. But we want to figure out why aren't you eating. It's really important for them to eat in order to be able to main, maintain focus throughout the rest of the day because the brain uses a lot of blood sugar. So if it's not getting fed, then the child is probably going to have symptoms of fatigue and maybe even anxiety as their blood sugar goes low, cortisol goes up to cause the body to release blood glucose, which can make people feel shaky. Um, Children can be restless, fidgety, or hyperactive. Sometimes when kids get stressed out, they start moving because that's what all they know to do with their energy. They have difficulty containing it. We want to pay attention to this, and this is one of those places where we want to make sure to effectively differenti differentially diagnose. Difficulty concentrating when you're stressed? I mean, think about it. It's difficult to concentrate. That's one that's pretty universal. They may start to shake or sweat in intimidating situations. They may have dizziness. They may have a frequent urge to urinate, especially before something stressful. Or in some small, in, in smaller children, they may wet the bed. If they start wetting the bed and they're older children, especially, you want to definitely look into that to make sure that it's not pointing to something else. But if they suddenly start wetting the bed again, obviously, something's going on and we want to try to figure out what it is. The child may have constantly tense muscles or an exaggerated startle response. And we've seen this in some children that are just like, they jump out of their seat if you come and you touch them on their shoulder. We want to figure out where that comes from. Make sure it's not PTSD, um, but we also want to, if they have an exaggerated startle response, help them figure out how to work with that. They may have trouble falling or staying asleep. They may wake up with nightmares. They may have, you know, my daughter 
tried for a while to remember all of her dreams. And she told me the other day, she's like, Ma, you know what? I realized after I tried to start remembering my dreams, there's a lot of stuff I just don't want to remember. <laughs> uh, because she would have the same dreams that a lot of us have showing up, showing up to school in our pajamas or, you know, whatever. And he, she was like, I, I don't want to think about that stuff. So asking children, what's keeping your mind busy? What is making you have trouble falling or staying asleep? And helping them, especially with falling asleep, helping them learn how to tame the monkey mind. And we're going to get into that in a little while. Deep breathing, progressive muscular relaxation, there are things that they can do. They may fall asleep in school because they're anxious so much they're not getting quality sleep, so they're exhausted all the time. They may do repetitive activities like we talked about. They may also in engage in nail biting, which is a nervous habit for a lot of us, or skin picking. And you know, when I say skin picking, I'm not necessarily talking about digging in and breaking the skin, but they may like just pick at their skin out of a nervous habit. Um, and pulling hair can also become one of those things where they pull out their arm hairs in as a method of dealing with their anxiety and they may also have or hold to rigid routines and if they don't have those routines they get very stressed out because that is the one way they're trying to control their anxiety they're trying to make sure they can control their life so they can anticipate we're going to talk about what children fear in a minute but i want to first reflect real quick on how children think differently remember from age zero to two Children are developing object permanence. From zero to six months, they've got no object permanence. If you can't be seen, you disappeared. If from six months on, that object permanence is really developing, and depending on the child, it pops in sooner or later. And during this time, children are also developing a sense of personal agency. When they're infants, they learn if they cry, their caregiver will magically appear, and take away whatever's causing the distress when they are older they start learning that if they do something it will result in some sort of activation of their caregiver if they knock their drink off of their tray and they um and it hits the floor parent usually picks it up and goes uh-oh and puts it back on the puts it back on the high chair tray which becomes a just wickedly wickedly enjoyable game for a lot of kids as they get even older, and even, even up to two, they're starting to become verbal, they may start asking for drinks or food if they're hungry, um, especially if they're taught sign language. So they're starting to learn that they can ask for what they think they need. When children are overtired, startled, too hot, too cold, or have low blood sugar, the HPA axis is activated which triggers that threat response, which triggers an anxiety response. So when children are young, if they are not able to get their basic Maslowian needs met, you know, food, shelter, warmth, medical care, then they are, or and sleep, then they are probably going to feel anxious. Bearing that in mind, you know, what are we going to do to help this little child not feel anxious? We're going to make sure they're getting their basic needs met for survival, safety, and love. Age two to seven, the child is egocentric, personalized, concrete, dichotomous, and mystical in their thinking. So what does that mean? Egocentric, they can't, they think everybody sees a situation as they do. They think that 
if they want the ball then and they think they should have the ball then everybody thinks they should have the ball they they have difficulty taking other people's perspectives empathy hasn't quite developed yet personalized kids at this age take everything personally so when something happens they think it's their fault likewise sometimes when things happen and they're good they think it's their doing as well concrete and dichotomous when something happens it's all good or all bad daddy either loves me or he hates me there's no in between there's no he loves me he doesn't like my behavior that's something that children learn along the way by experiencing unconditional positive regard and us articulating that to them so they can start learning and developing that schema and in this age children are still thinking mystically they have difficulty separating reality from fantasy difficulty separating dreams and nightmares from what's in the moment and we need to help them figure out how to do that during this stage we may hear something like daddy yelled at me and then daddy left us so daddy hates me and it's all my fault that he left you know that's pretty egocentric personalized and dichotomous I told mommy I hated her and then she got sick and it's my fault mommy got sick I've heard that one before I didn't say my prayers last night we got into a car accident because God's mad at me I'm I know we've heard that one before or the neighbor's dog always charges the fence and wants to bite me this makes me scared so dogs are dangerous now do kids necessarily articulate this quite this way no because it's um, difficult for them to put, connect all these dots sometimes we need to talk it through with them and help them identify what they're thinking and then help them or help correct those beliefs a little bit for example yes you're right daddy daddy was in a really bad mood and he yelled at you today and that hurt your feelings and then he left because he needed some space um, and you know reassuring the child that you love them for who they are and telling them you know daddy doesn't hate you but and and he'll be back or if, if he won't then you know daddy doesn't hate you he just he was really angry helping the child hear from another caregiver that you know what you're loved you're awesome whatever happened it's not your fault and start helping them hear that they're not going to necessarily believe it or remember it the next time something happens but we can start putting that narrative into their mind 7 to 11 children start making global attributions from specifics and when we start talking to adults who have mood disorders we start seeing that a lot of the inductive reasoning that they made when they were younger or they may still use faulty inductive reasoning they haven't challenged those beliefs so for example a child might say I didn't make the team I got a C on my spelling test today I'm a failure I suck at everything and again that's that's pretty global I am a failure no okay you didn't make the the basketball team all right maybe there were some other people that were better maybe you need to work on some skills and helping them reframe instead of I am a failure you are a good person you failed at making the team how can we correct that or try to correct that for next year you are not a failure you failed your spelling test 
How can we work on that so you can pass your spelling test the next time? And then at 11 years old and older, more advanced reasoning is there, but there's little life experience, and they've often not questioned any prior faulty schema. So something that they experienced once, you know, thinking of, if we live in, in uh, Tornado Alley here, and if a child has been through a thunderstorm and there has been, there was a tornado, then they may be afraid that all thunderstorms bring tornadoes, and they've induced uh, that logic. So we need to help them by giving them more factual information about how often thunderstorms actually spawn tornadoes and maybe what to look for on the weather radar or whatever you want to do, depending on how old the child is. We want to help them gain the knowledge to increase the breadth of their knowledge so they can make more informed choices about how they're going to deal with their feelings. So what is anxiety? Anxiety is fear, which is the flee part of the fight or flee, fight or flight stress response. Okay, so it means you've been exposed to a threat. Well, what do children fear? What are threats to them? Death is a threat to them. Of course, you know, our own death is obviously kind of scary. You know, we, we don't want to walk out into traffic or get run off the road. But for children, biological needs, anything that may stand in the way of that getting their biological needs met can be very threatening to them, which means if their parents abandon them or if their parents go go out to work and never come home because they got killed in a traffic accident, heaven forbid, you know, that is really threatening because you know, what do I do if you don't come home? What happens? We want to see it through a child's eyes. When you walk out that door, you're gone. And yes, there's object permanence. You know, after the age of two, children realize that you're, you're probably going to come home. But for children, recognizing if they feel anxious, they feel scared that you're not going to come back, or maybe you've never left them at somebody else's house before, so they may not feel safe. We want to make sure that they feel safe and secure, that they will get their needs met, and you're not going to disappear. You're not going to abandon them. They fear rejection, isolation, and abandonment. Well, if they're rejected, by their caregivers, if they're isolated or abandoned by their caregivers, then they're not going to get their biological needs met. Small children can't get their biological needs met. They can't go shopping. They can't earn money. Safety. Small children can't take care of themselves. And the world seems very big. I mean, get down sometime and or even think back to when you were little and your house seemed huge and you go back to your house as a grown-up and you're looking around going, this doesn't seem like such a big place after all. For little kids, the world is just ginormous and people are huge and things can be scary. Even the, you know, the Great Dane next door that is about the size of a small horse doesn't seem big to you, but it is its head is as big as your baby's entire body. So, yeah, that would be scary. We want to look at things from the perspective of a child and go, okay, I can see how that would be intimidating. The unknown is scary for the exact same reasons. Think of Maslow's hierarchy. Anything that stands in the way of bi getting biological needs met, being safe, 
or being loved and taken care of in to help the child meet their needs is going to be threatening. So the unknown can be threatening. If they're getting ready to start a new school or they have to take state tests or whatever and they don't know how they're going to do. And if they don't do well, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And they can get all kinds of tied up in knots about all this kind of stuff. So we want to help them visualize what's to come. We want to help them anticipate the unknown a little bit to help them reduce their anxiety so they feel, again, safe and efficacious, if you will. And loss of control kind of goes along with the unknown, but there are certain things that we may not have control over. And children really crave structure from from adults. That helps them feel like they're in control, and it helps them feel like the adults are in control. If parents seem like they're out of control, then that's really scary to kids because they're like, oh my gosh, my parent's not in control, and I need them to hold it together for my survival. So that can be really scary. Now, don't get me wrong. You know, parents are human. They're allowed to have many meltdowns like everybody else, but especially thinking back to those adverse childhood experiences when you have a caregiver in the home who is struggling with a mental health or addictive issue, then the world can seem very chaotic to the child because the parents are not in control. So what's causing the anxiety? Well, for children, we're not really sure. We need to figure out what is the root, what is causing them to feel um, unsafe or anxious or vulnerable or unloved. So we want to look at cognitions. We want to look at helpful thoughts. We want to look at lack of knowledge. Sometimes they have dichotomous thinking. You can look at cognitive distortions and, you know, it makes perfect sense and we can help them address those distortions. Other times, They just have lack of knowledge. They may be afraid to get on an airplane because it seems really scary. Or they may be afraid to go outside and play because they turn on the news and every time they turn on the news, they hear about somebody getting shot in, quote, their neighborhood. What they don't really realize, you know, like in, in Nashville, for example, it's really depressing sometimes to turn on the news, so I don't. But (laughs) it's just... Tragic story after tragic story after tragic story. And yeah, I would feel kind of unsafe and uneasy if I thought that was the entire scope of reality. Educating children that the news doesn't do well if they give you lots of happy fluff stories. And, you know, what happened, what they're talking about that happened, happened 60 miles from here, not three doors down. Helping them understand that they're safe in their little enclave. Physical, lack of sleep can cause anxiety. Life is more difficult to handle on life's terms when we're exhausted. We know this. Poor nutrition or hunger. Poor nutrition keeps the body from having the building blocks to make glutamate, which is needed to make GABA. And hunger, as I said earlier, when your blood sugar goes low, your body will secrete cortisol in order to cause your body to dump blood glucose so you have you know energy again but sometimes that gives people the shakes 
really young children, the ones that are still breastfeeding, breast milk is metabolized really quickly, which is why they tend to get hungry like every couple of hours and need to eat, um, and they start to cry. And we want to recognize what's causing their anxiety, what, where, what's causing their discomfort, or what's causing them to perceive a threat. Hormones can cause anxiety in, in children, especially um, your sex hormones in your preteens and your pubescent teens. Hormones are going all over the place, and they can really impact mood and really increase anxiety levels. Your thyroid hormones are also important, especially hyperthyroid can contribute to uh, feelings of anxiety in children. And thyroid issues are often undiagnosed, but really not that uncommon in, in children. If a child has a lot of anxiety, it can't hurt to have the thyroid tested when they have their physical. You know, it's part of the test anyway. Emotional. The child may be highly sensitive to begin with, and we go back and look at Linehan's writings, and we know there are certain people who are born, were just wired to be more sensitive and more impacted by the environment. So we may need to help those children develop stronger uh, skills for emotion regulation and distress tolerance. Environmentally, what can cause anxiety? Well, bullies. And this can be bullies at school. This can be a big brother who's a big old bully. Uh, teacher pressure. Oh, this one. Okay, soapbox moment. This one grinds my gears. When teachers put pressure on children, I'm going to lose my job if you don't do well. There's a child, uh, a young person, who uh, goes, hangs out with my kids. And that child's teacher told him, that if you're the only one in this class that I think is going to pass this AP exam, and if you don't pass th this AP exam, it may cost me my job. Oh, my gosh. Why would you tell that to a ch child? Okay, soapbox moment over. Teacher pressure or even parental pressure going, you have to succeed, you have to make the football team, can cause anxiety because it says, if I don't do this, then I'm going to let them down, which may lead to rejection, which may lead to, again, failing to get my needs met, and they won't love me if I fail. We want to make sure that we communicate to children regularly that they are awesome for who they are, even if they don't get straight A's, even if they don't make the basketball team or the football team. Parental enmeshment or disengagement can cause anxiety. Enmeshment, where you got that helicopter parenting, and the parent sometimes is sometimes is living through the child, the child can get really anxious because they're afraid if they aren't the perfect little whatever that their caregiver wants them to be, that they won't be loved. Disengagement, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. The child may be anxious and afraid because they're like, nothing that I do, no matter how well I do, gets this caregiver to pay attention to me. Does he or she even love me? A chaotic home environment, we already talked about. If the person, if a caregiver has mental health or addiction issues, or if there is abuse or neglect of the child, or if someone in the house that the child witnesses, then that can cause a lot of anxiety in the child, fear for safety. Um, and social learning. 
if a child sees a grown-up, sees a caregiver, or even an older sibling get anxious about something, then they are more likely to think that, okay, that must be something threatening, so that must be something I need to worry about. So through social learning, they can develop fears and anxieties that we need to help them address. Maybe it's a very realistic fear. Maybe it's not. And addressing that. My, my daughter, for example... Um, my husband was in, in law enforcement for two decades and, you know, was always very adamant that she stayed exactly where we could see her in the store, wasn't to, to stray off and that. So she started getting very anxious about being out in public and being around people because she started overgeneralizing and seeing people as threatening. And we had to work with her, you know, okay, when you're two, that it's one thing, you know two, three, four, five, it's one thing, you know, grown-ups can be more dangerous to you than now that you are 14 and a black belt, you know, I'm really not nearly as worried. And helping her look at the logic between the two situations, why, you know, yes, strangers can be dangerous, but so can people you know. I wasn't going to go there with her. But we do want to help children regularly challenge their schemas and based on social learning challenge those lessons that they get and go is this really something to be anxious about differential diagnosis in anxiety disorders there's multiple anxiety disorders there's your simple phobias there's separation anxiety there's social anxiety and generalized anxiety to name a few um so we want to make sure that we're addressing the right anxiety disorder. If a child has social anxiety, we're going to approach it a little bit differently than generalized. Depression. And you're thinking, well, how? Children who are depressed may also present with difficulty concentrating, irritability, sleep disturbances. We want to make sure that we are differentially diagnosing them. A lot of children may have concurrent anxiety and depression. We don't want to just diagnose the depression without looking at the anxiety. They could have been stressed out for so long that they reached that point of just overstimulation and learned helplessness. In order for their depression to lift, they're going to have to also address the anxiety. ADD. Children with anxiety can seem very attention deficit-like. A lot of children with ADD do have anxiety, but there's a lot of times where anxiety gets misdiagnosed as ADD because the child is having difficulty concentrating, they're fidgety, they're a little bit impulsive, um, really looking at what's going on with that child. Autism is sometimes misdiagnosed for anxiety because of their intense focus, because of their difficulty making eye contact, their reticence to participate in group activities. Um, so you can see where some of the symptoms overlap. <clears throat> PTSD can look like anxiety and recognizing the hypervigilance, the difficulty sleeping, the irritability, some, the withdrawal. Those things can look like anxiety, um, anxiety disorders. Again, they can be concurrent. We want to rule out PTSD. We want to make sure that we're treating everything that's present. And I put in acute stress disorder. Um, you can also throw in adjustment disorder there. If there's something that is um, traumatic, 
going on in their life it may present like generalized anxiety but then when we back away from it a little bit and get a more global view we recognize that you know one of their caregivers just got diagnosed with cancer or something that, that is super traumatic to them that's having multiple Im impacts, reverberations in the rest of their life. And oppositional defiant disorder. Kids with uh, anxiety tend to have more tantrums, irritability, outbursts, be more defiant sometimes when they are feeling really out of control. Now, let's think about that. If the child is anxious if they feel out of control if they feel vulnerable one of the things they want the caregiver to do is to reassure them that they're safe and provide some structure oppositional defiant disorder or symptoms of you know um, children who display those temper tantrums and things that we might misdiagnose as ODD may be craving parental attention and structure a parent to go it's going to be okay I've got this and reassurance now that's not true with ODD I'm not saying that you can treat ODD that way I'm saying that if somebody has anxiety and it looks they have some of the symptoms of ODD we might want to look at what is the child needing what are they getting out of behaving this way so how what do we do infants to two years old be responsive and I'm just going to read this to you because he put it pretty eloquently um, Dr. Howard Chilton, Chilton wrote, before six months, if you just let a baby cry it out when you're trying to teach them to sleep, you're just extinguishing. Eventually, the baby just gives up. Loss of parental contact in an infant, zero to six months old, is a serious danger signal for young babies, and they're designed to cry until that contact is restored. But beyond a certain point, even a hysterical baby will stop crying. This is because in an evolutionary sense, an unprotected crying baby is broadcasting its whereabouts to predators. It's saying, I'm here, I'm unattended. Instinct tells it that its parents have vanished and that the tiger that killed them is close by and will kill it. It falls silent in order to survive. Well, that's really sad when you think about it. When we're working with children, we do want to recognize and remember their stage of object permanence when we're working with them. And, you know, he goes on to talk about controlled periods of crying it out, um, but, and, and how to help children learn how to sleep. But he, he definitely is an advocate for not doing that before the age of six months. Infants to two years old, you can also start talking it out even with small kids start teaching emotional vocabulary and needs identification such as are you hungry or if you give them food and they eat you can say wow you were really hungry and start using those feeling words and those sensation words to help them identify what's going on verbally they they know that there's a feeling they know it's a, a sense of discomfort somehow but they may not have a word to put with it so we need to give them those words uh, talk it out with them the dog scared you the the dog is loud loud sounds can be scary for you and help them understand what's going on you know we're working with an infant here so this these very simple sentences are very appropriate at this point Toddlers struggle with being able 
to correctly identify their emotions and find the right words to describe that emotion. And they just feel, ah, sometimes. Encourage them to use feeling faces. You, you can have that on the refrigerator, wherever. May not, it's going to take a little learning. They're not just going to go to it right away, but it's going to help them start using a wider array of feeling words. When you're watching videos with them, help them identify feelings in videos. Ask questions about how characters feel. How do you think it made, you know, whomever, <laughs> I'm out of Disney characters right now, so-and-so feel when that happened to them. Play games to help them with their fears. Again, the child has to be mobile. We're talking, you know, 18 months and up. You can start playing hide-and-seek, but start small. You know, when you hide, hide in the same room. That way the child can find you and they know, oh, wow, she's there. And you know peekaboo for even younger kids. They find that incessantly amusing. And us as adults, we're like, why do you find this funny? But to them, every time you go down behind the sofa, you've disappeared. And then you show up again and it's a surprise and it's really exciting. As children start learning these games and they start practicing, you're forming those neural connections that say, I may be out of sight, but I'm coming back. You can also, if they've got social anxiety, have, go to mommy and me classes where you're interacting with them with others or go on play dates, again, where you're interacting with them. You're not just saying, okay, you go play for 30 minutes and I'm going to play on my phone. No, you want to Interact with them in controlled situations. Maybe have, you know, another caregiver and their child over and have a tea party or something. All right. How do you do angry? How do you sad? How do you do happy? Happy! How do you do bored? How do you do scared? How do you do surprise? <laughs> Again? Again? Surprise! Okay, I wasn't expecting that to start right then, but forgive the graininess of the video. That was my son, uh, so the video is like 20 years old. <laughs> But we used to work on what do these feelings look like, and it was just an amusing game to him. He he had no problem with it. So um, though there are different things you can do to help kids start developing that emotional vocabulary and feel comfortable using words. With two to seven-year-olds, you want to provide structure and consistency. The child at this stage is starting to try to develop agency. You know, you're working towards that time of potty training, and they're starting to want to choose their clothes, but they need some sort of structure. They need to know you're there to support them. Let children know the plans for the day and what's happening next. You may have a daily schedule chart. So get up, eat breakfast, go to school, um, come home, eat dinner, take a bath. Obviously, you're going to use pictures for this for, for a young child, but that helps them let that helps let them know what to expect. You can do it with laminated pictures and Velcro, which can be really helpful. So you can take the daily chart with you when you go to grandma's house or when you go on vacation or whatever. 
so the child can still see what's going to happen if they need that kind of um, if they need that level of narration of consistency give plenty of warning before transitioning this helps reduce children's anxiety they have difficulty switching on a dime especially if they didn't really expect it to be coming up you can use verbal you know give a two-minute warning then a one-minute warning you can use a bell that lets them know it's about time to move and then tell them when it's time to go again you want to give them a good couple of minutes to transition you can also use chants, and you can use them at home, you can use them at school. For example, the clock on the wall says it's time to stop, time to stop, time to stop. The, um, the clock on the wall says it's time to stop, time to go to lunch, time to go to bed, time to go outside, whatever. Um, that can, if you do that to Farajaka, then you can sing it. To twinkle twinkle little star you can do stop look and listen hands by your side listen close and i'll tell you why or um everybody buckle up to ride in the car we're going to the park school we're, we're going to grandma's house whatever um it's not far so finding a little rhyme that you can use think dr seuss when you're doing it something that's a catchy but not super long that they will have difficulty remembering and say it every time every time you get into the car everybody buckle up to ride in the car we're going to billy's house it's not very far and they get used to that so it becomes routine and it becomes fun and it solidifies that memory pathway ensure children knows what's expected you know you can have that chart that you're narrating if something new is going to change maybe they're going to go to church for the first time or they're going to go to the doctor make sure they know what's expected you can have uh, coloring pages that maybe they're going to the doctor for the first time coloring pages about what to expect at the doctor and let them color those so they're having a positive association with something that they're getting ready to do be patient though when children test the rules because they are little scientists they're going to want to test the rules and go all right it's this way at home is it this way here when my son was little we went to my grandmother's house and she had lots of breakables around and everything and he was about that age of two two and a half and uh, he toddled over to the TV and he looked at the TV and he said no touch and I said you're right no touch and he looked at me very semi-defiantly and he touched the TV and I looked at him and he said time out I said yes time out and he very happily toddled over to time out he's like okay the rules work the same here at grandma's house we're good teach mindful awareness help children from a very early age start becoming aware of their feelings sensations and urges teach distress tolerance skills like deep breathing and not just take a few deep breaths because children when they do that will hyperventilate <laughs> you want to help them take a deep breath hold it while I count to four one two three four now exhale and do it with them and yes you've got to be a little dramatic when you do it but that's just part of working with kids help them practice that and as they get older you can explain to them that when they breathe in slowly like that and breathe out slowly like that it triggers the relaxation response teach them positive self-talk and how to get support when they need it because it's okay to ask for help with two to seven year olds you can also begin systematic desensitization if they're afraid of something then you can start having them imagine 
you know, think about um, walking past the dog next door. And, you know, how do you feel? All right, let's take some deep breaths, you know, practice that deep breathing. Now, encourage them to maybe visualize the dog stopping and sitting or wagging its tail or whatever and get them used to envisioning it so they don't get upset as soon as they start thinking about the dog next door. And then maybe go across the street and watch the dog next door. Get them used to being around something that may be a little threatening. For if they have some agoraphobia, social phobia thing, um, you know, maybe going into a store when it's a not a busy time is first envisioning it, and then going to a store when it's not a busy time. So they're out in public and they're around other people, but they're not feeling completely inundated. And then gradually working up to going shopping on a Saturday afternoon or something where it's like totally chaotic and crowded. Join kids in their reality at this age. We don't want to tell them, oh, what you're thinking doesn't exist. It's silly. Now, we can help them learn to separate fantasy from reality, but we also don't want to negate their fears because their fears are very real to them. We want to reassure them that there's no danger. Uh, sometimes you can talk about the anxiety monkey that likes to play tricks on them. They have an anxiety monkey that's kind of in their head, that kind of goes along with monkey mind. Um, and you can even give them a stuffed animal monkey so they can hold this monkey and they can talk to this monkey and they can say, monkey, quit playing these tricks on me. Um, my daughter named her monkey Reginald. Um, <laughs> So, monkey sometimes is playing tricks on you. He's not ready to sleep, so he's trying to make your mind think that there are things to do and play tricks on you because he's bored. Uh, so, encourage the child maybe to use guided imagery. So, I want you, when you close your eyes, I want you to imagine you and Reginald going to the playground together and playing and having fun. So, if you're giving them something to imagine, then their mind won't necessarily be going off into scary places. Sometimes Reginald, the anxiety monkey, doesn't know what's going to happen. So, he makes you think about the worst possible thing that can happen. So, what can you tell Reginald, you know, before you go to the doctor or get on the plane or have your first day at school, whatever it is, what are you going to tell Reginald to help him feel safe, to help him feel calm. Um, Lisa also suggests that kids can draw a picture of themselves and a picture of what anxiety looks like, um, and they can start articulating that and seeing that. Address distortions to reassure kids that they're safe and loved. They can have that all or none thinking. Remind them and keep telling them until they remember, I can be mad at your behavior and still love you. Address global attributions by looking at the facts and provide information because kids don't have a lot of information. They haven't been on this earth for that long. So we may need to help them see, you know, before you go on an airplane, yeah, it seems scary, but think about, you know, let me tell you about how many planes take off and leave every single day and don't have a problem. Maybe even go to the airport ahead of time and watch planes come and go and come and go and there's no problems. Discourage the use, and I don't say eliminate it because sometimes there is a reason for an, an extreme word, but discourage the use of extreme words like everyone always does this or nobody ever does this. Magnification. Use a frequency chart 
to see the likelihood that something's going to happen. You know, if you go on this trip, then you may be in, uh, be in an accident and never come home. All right, well, let's keep, let's think about how many times I've gone on trips before and I've come back just fine. This is just another instance. And have the child start keeping a record, or you do it for them, keeping a record of every time you leave and, and come back. So when they start having this anxiety, they can look at it and go, look at how many times this has happened without incident. Do minifi- minimize exposure to the news or even letting them overhear discussions about the news. Because again, children have difficulty separating and understanding tempor- temporal relations. They don't understand something that happened two weeks ago. They have difficulty understanding that what they're seeing on TV may be 300 miles away or 30 miles away. It may not be happening in their city or in their town. Address distortions. And let me just go back to that because there was another school shooting this past week. Uh, And that can also be traumatic because they see this on TV and they think, using that inductive reasoning, children got shot at school. All schools are dangerous. School is a dangerous place to be. So we want to help them. Look at a frequency chart. How many times have you gone to school and nothing bad's happened? Okay. Keep reassuring them that. Share with them the facts of the school safety plan or whatever it is to help them feel safe. Um, But it is important to help them get a more realistic um, awareness of the frequency that something happens and the likelihood that it will happen to them. Address personalization distortions. Identify your emotions generally and why you feel that way. If you come home from work and you are just in an awful mood, you know, it may be appropriate to say, you know what, mommy is in a really bad mood right now. I love you and I want to play with you in a little while, but I need some time to get happy again or decompress or whatever word you use with your child. That way they understand it has nothing to do with them and that you love them and you want to play with them. If you get angry, maybe you get angry at your caregiver, or not caregiver, your your significant other, and the child sees this, and they may start getting a little bit nervous that maybe they did something, and, you know, ideally you take your discussion to another room, but you also want to share with the child that, you know, we are having a disagreement right now, but that's okay. We still love you, and we still love each other. We just have a difference of opinion. Help children start addressing those distortions. Maybe they get um, into an argument with their best friend and their best friend's angry at them. Um, And they think, oh my gosh, they're never going to be my friend again. Um, Or maybe their friend is angry and not at them. And you can help them look at that and say, you know what, Sally seems like she's really depressed, but have you ever been depressed and, you know, hung out with Sally and it wasn't her fault, you were in a bad mood. And then sometimes bad things happen and it's nobody's fault and give them an example to help them understand that they don't cause everything. You know, they don't have that much power in the world. That's a relief to a lot of kids to recognize that, you know, they're not going to actually step on a crack and break their mother's back. Seven-year-olds, remember the small size of their world and relative lack of experience make makes everything seem so much bigger. 
they're constantly growing and changing. So some days they may feel more tired, may have difficulty feeling like they fit in, or may feel more awkward and less capable. You know, think of it like a goldfish in a little tiny, um, in a little tiny bowl. It doesn't have much room to move around. doesn't have much knowledge of what's going on. So when things happen, if somebody put another fish into this little tiny goldfish bowl, that would be really uncomfortable for that goldfish because they don't have anything else to draw from. They don't have anywhere else to go. If somebody put a goldfish over in this big goldfish bowl, eh, the goldfish might be a little ticked off, but, you know, he has plenty of other places he can swim. He has, for children, they, their world is this little goldfish bowl. So if something bad happens at school, if something anxiety-provoking happens at school, you can't say, oh, you know, well, school's just a little part of your life and da-da. No, it's a big part of their life. It's a huge part of their life right now. So we do need to recognize that our world is much bigger and we have much more, many more experiences to draw from. This, our children are living in a little microcosm and we need to recognize that what doesn't seem like a big deal to us may be a huge deal to them. General anxiety management skills. Keep blood sugar stable. Encourage kids to get enough sleep. Practice positive self-talk. Remind them to check the facts. And again, I know I've said it like 12 times now. Younger children may not have the facts. So we, need, we may need to educate them about the facts, about how likely something is to happen or other reasons this might be happening besides, you know, what they, what they expect or besides it being their fault. Encourage them to use visualizations. Have them see themselves starting their first day of school successfully. I know I always used to get butterflies in my tummy the first day before the school year started, and I was at the same school. You know, before going into homeroom, it's like, who's going to be in my homeroom? And, you know, am I going to be wearing the right thing? And does everybody have a trapper keeper? You know, that tells you how old I am. <laughs> but those are things that, you know, you might worry about. So encourage children to use visualizations and see themselves successfully going through things. See themselves successfully um, making it through a doctor's appointment, even if they get a shot. Remind them to practice deep breathing. Teach them and practice as a family mindfulness to nip anxiety in the bud. So they start, if they start feeling that churning, if they start feeling Reginald, you know, getting a little bit anxious and starting to do monkey mind, or they start feeling that churning in their tummy, uh, we call him Lenny, <laughs> but we have names, we have lots of names, then they can identify it and address it early on instead instead of waiting until it's a full-out anxiety attack. Encourage them to get support from people who care about them unconditionally. Remind them to get support because people want to help them. People want to be there for them, and they're not going to reject them or not love them because they're not perfect. Encourage them to find mentors who have gone through the same thing. And this can be, you know, media personalities or whatever, like, who have gone through adversities in their life, similar adversities, and overcome them in order to help them see that it can be done. Spend five minutes focusing on the positives each day instead of, you know, just generally. Encourage them to spend a solid five minutes. When they come out of that five minutes, a lot of times their anxiety will be reduced a little bit at least. And remember that just because 
you have a thought that something is scary or feel anxious doesn't mean it's fearsome. Roller coasters, for example. Most of us are terrified before we go on a roller coaster the first time. Doesn't mean it's dangerous or fearsome. Some people think it's the greatest thing in the whole wide world. Uh, and encouraging them to understand that just because I have this fear doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be harmful. Wasps are the same way. You know, paper wasps are about the most docile things in the world. We have one that hangs out outside of our front door and flies in periodically, and I've named him George. And we just shoo George out. You know, George doesn't want to sting us, <laughs> but my best friend is terrified of wasps, so we have to make sure that you know, she doesn't know if George flies in the house, but I digress. She's not allergic. She's just afraid of them. Um, but knowing and having facts about it can help people understand whether it's fearsome or not, but also just remembering that sometimes we have false warnings. Children, children's cognitive, physical, and experiential differences make their anxiety different from that of adults. Their symptoms of anxiety may also manifest differently with more irritability, defiance, and somatic complaints. Anxiety disorders are frequently misdiagnosed as ADD, autism, ODD, and PTSD. Children's fears often focus around Maslow's lower three needs, biological, safety, love, and belonging. Addressing anxiety means helping the child understand in a developmentally appropriate way that they will have what they need, they are safe, and they will always belong and be loved. We're nearing the end of this episode, but I wanted to take a minute and thank everyone who listens to Counselor Toolbox podcast. I truly, truly appreciate you. I would be grateful if you would please go into your podcast player and rate Counselor Toolbox. The more five-star ratings we have, the higher we rank, and the more people we can reach with these free resources. If you have comments or topic suggestions, please email us at support at allceus.com. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.